Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Nick. <laughs> yeah, what a great quick recovery instead of saying sings, <laughs> which I was thinking sings, but Nick did not fall to that trap. <laughs> we are beginning this series on Galatians, and for those of you who have ever read Paul's letter to the Galatians, you might recognize that it's a little different than most of his letters. Actually, it's quite different. Um, the title of the series is Set Free in the Gospel. And you'll see throughout this letter how Paul really wrestles with this idea of freedom in Christ that some want to take away from Paul as well as from ultimately from the church, from Christians. And this letter is often thought of as sort of a, a mini Romans, you might say. I mean, that, that almost is a, does a disservice to Galatians, but it's, it's in every way a, a great summary and explanation of the gospel of Christ. Paul does this by referring to the Old Testament and the New, and you'll see the, the two coming together. Because of this, it has had often many points of controversy, theological debate, in fact, you could make the case that out of all the books of the Bible, the book of Galatians is the one in which is most argued today theologically because of its understanding of the law and the gospel. And it has so many different tentacles upon which we understand God's word. How do we live as a Christian in the church, especially in light of what is written in the Old Testament? So, for example, do Christians today need to abide by the dietary laws of the, the Jews? Does the Sabbath and all of its implications have a hold on how we are to understand how we worship on the Lord's Day today? Do we work out our salvation? And does in any way some level of our faith and faithfulness cause us to have some merit before God? And before we are quick to answer the question, no, there's no way that our faithfulness can have some merit, there's a lot of debate as to, well, do we really understand that? Do we mean that? Do we get what that's all about? So really, the gospel is at stake here. This is also one of the key letters that Martin Luther wrote a whole commentary on, and it was pr probably what launched him into the idea of justification by faith alone and his, his uh, break away from the Roman Catholic Church eventually. So significant in that way. If we have time or I'm thinking about doing this is where we'll have a couple of uh, sermon Zoom question and answers throughout this series 
because I do think that there will be certain points where there will need to be some clarification that I might not be able to do in this time period. And so if you're interested in that, please join me with that. Today, we're going to cover the first five verses of chapter one. And it's a great place to start because in it are sort of these broad themes that we're going to see throughout Paul's letter to the Galatians. The first major theme that we see in these first five verses that is actually going to be explained further in Galatians is first regarding Paul as the messenger, the messenger. We're going to look specifically at verses one through two in that. And then secondly is the message, verses three to five. And if you could, I could almost break this down in Paul's letter to the Galatians because in chapters one and two, Paul essentially is giving his reason as to why they should listen to him and essentially the messenger. And, and then chapters three through six is really the message, two through six, three through six, somewhere around there. So verses one through five is sort of this thesis statement that then is being played out throughout the rest of Galatians. And I hope you'll be able to see that thread very similarly with me. So first, we're going to look at Paul as the messenger in verses 1 through 2. And before we do that, I want to give a quick little historical background as to who are these Galatians. Galatia became a Roman province in about 25 BC. It was a, a vast land, actually. So you will mistake it if you think Galatia is one city. It's not. It's a, it's a province. It's a region. And it's actually quite a large region within the Roman Empire. It also had many ethnic groups. So it's sort of consistent of Central Asia today, Southern Europe. And so it, it encompasses the Baltic regions, the um, a part of Greece. And it's, it's very vast and Turkey, to modern-day Turkey. So if you can imagine, uh, you know, the, the Central Asia, the, even parts possibly going to like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, to Turkey, to northern Greece, really a, a vast array of ethnicities, and clearly not Jewish, very Gentile. But because of the Jewish diaspora, the spreading of the Jews because of the exile in 586, a lot of Jews did go to this area. And so you have sort of this blending of Jew and Gentile, different ethnicities. The common language of the day, if you didn't know, again, is Greek. So it's very much like English. But if you were to go to different parts of the United States, even though English is the common language, but there are many ethnicities there that are speaking other languages, and that's their mother tongue. So you have Spanish you have Chinese, you have, you know, Polish, I mean, German. So you have all these languages, but there's one common language, English. Keep that in mind, because all of this is going to help you to understand why is this struggle so deeply embedded in the church in Galatia, and how does that impact us today? So Galatia has that in mind. It's a, it's a vast region. The capital of Galatia as a province is Antioch. And if you know from Acts chapter 13, you know that Paul and Barnabas were launched from the church in Antioch. And Antioch is often considered to be the first church outside of Jerusalem founded by Christ, as, as a Christian church. So it's very significant as the first essential Gentile Christian church. 
This is what we have to keep in mind. Paul's letter is being written to a group of churches, and this letter is being passed around from one church to the next to the next, and it's being read. And Paul's instruction is so critical because Paul and Barnabas were these missionaries that had been sent out as believers of Christ from Jerusalem going out to different places, again, as we see in Acts chapters 13, 14, 15, and they're going to all these different cities. And what they're first doing is preaching the gospel. And they're going out and presenting who Jesus is, what he has done, and the implications of that. And people are turning to Christ. They're, they're actually forming churches, and henceforth the, the creation of these Galatian churches. Now he returns and then he hears a report of something going amiss, that suddenly people are not believing what he had taught, even though they were first excited by it, and now they weren't so excited about, by it. As well, they started hearing that Paul isn't who he said he was. Maybe he's not an apostle. Maybe he's not that significant. Maybe he was just some guy who is giving some message, and who knows whether it's real or true. And so Paul is hearing reports of the churches now no longer trusting him. Other teachers are discrediting him. And that's significant, and you're going to see Paul address this throughout this letter. Second, by understanding the location of this letter, we're able to see, again, the context that Acts provides, that Luke provides for us in Acts. We know already that chapters 13 and 14 of Acts is the description of Paul going out to the churches in this region in Galatia. But we also know that um, there was in Acts chapter 15, for those of you who can uh, recall or have read this part of the Bible, you know that in Acts chapter 15 there was a council. And that council dealt with the question of do Gentile, meaning non-Jewish Christians, need to be circumcised in order to be a believer of Christ? And so they really wrestled with that question. And it's in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35, that we discover that they send report to the churches, probably in this region, that says, no, you do not need to be circumcised to be a believer of Christ. When we see, and we will see, an encounter between Peter and Paul in Galatians chapter 1 and 2, it's often the, the question of, is that encounter in any way connected to what's happening in Acts chapter 15? And I do believe that the answer to that is that there's two possibilities. One is that what happened in Acts chap uh, Galatians chapter 2 is a private conversation within a small group of people, possibly between Peter and Paul, discussing and actually arguing over some of the problems that were being faced. And then Acts is the public sort of a demonstration of what the gospel really is. It's either that or in some way, Galatians gives a little bit of a summary statement, you might say, of what's happening in Acts chapter 15. So again, a lot of this is sort of preface work, 
And you'll understand this more when we actually go through Galatians chapter 1 and 2. But I wanted to give you this up front because it gives you an idea as you're perhaps, if you're reading along with us in Galatians, maybe you've received a little booklet about Galatians and you're, you're reading the Bible and you think, well, how, do I, how does this happen? A great place to look is to go back to Acts 13, 14, 15 alongside with Galatians. And I think it'll give you a little bit of a flavor as to what's going on in this in this part. But I want you to notice a few things, especially in verse 1 of Galatians. It's that Paul, and remember, this is a letter. This letter is being distributed to these churches. And when you think of this letter, you have to think of it in the context of all of the other letters that Paul writes. I want to read to you some of the, the first verses of some of the other letters that Paul writes. So here's Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So that's verse 1 of chapter uh, 1 of Philippians. And then Romans 1.1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Ephesians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And now we're going to go back to Galatians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now look at that first part. Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man. Now here's the big question. Why does Paul throw in that qualifier in his letter to Galatians that he does not do in any other letter that he gives to the other churches. It seems obvious that Paul is facing an attack by people who are saying, Paul's not an apostle. Or he's no, I mean, he wasn't with Peter and James and John, so how can anything that Paul says be considered to be equal to what Peter says or to what John says or what James says? Maybe people were thinking, he's not, because he's not one of the original apostles, maybe his words, they have errors in it. And I'm sure that there are people going around in the churches of Galatia saying exactly that. So the very gospel that Paul is preaching how do we know that that's actually gospel? That that's exactly what Jesus wants us to know as what is the good news of Christ. So Paul has to remind them. He reminds them, if you look at this verse, he reminds them that he didn't just have a vision or this felt calling. He, it's, it's not from men nor through man. It's directly from Jesus himself, and we see this in Acts chapter 9, that when he met the risen Christ, whom he expressly notes in this verse, that that risen Christ is whom he speaks from and preaches from. And so therefore, he doesn't just take this on just simply to promote some nice morality and he isn't trying to be defensive about his feelings because he feels hurt because people aren't listening to him. He believed and he knew that he was commissioned by Christ Jesus himself, that that commissioning 
was directly the words of Jesus. And there was a serious attempt to undermine the gospel that Jesus proclaims. Notice also that what Paul is saying is it's so different than what I'm doing. So just to let you know, I think you know this, I didn't receive some direct vision of the Lord giving me words. And by the way, whenever you hear that in any type of context, you're in real danger. Joseph Smith, he had a vision of words being spoken to him directly. Muhammad, whenever you hear of someone who God speaks to them words and they now are speaking the word of God, it's always dangerous. But think about it this way. That's exactly what Paul is saying, right? So Paul is saying that. And what I'm saying is not I receive these words because I was taught by human beings. I went to seminary. I had professors. They were not Jesus. And anyone who preaches today or proclaims Christ today can never say what Paul says here, not from men nor through men. That is to say that every single proclaimer of the gospel today always teaches from men and through men. I, there's no other way upon which I understand and can, I'm not saying here, thus saith the Lord, but it's always, I learned this from a commentary written by a human being, and this person is trying to faithfully understand God's word. Paul doesn't have to do that. Paul says, everything I'm saying to you is directly from Jesus by his spirit. So that's something that we have to take to heart. This should mean that we do take this very seriously, his word. It also should mean that we desire to know it well because this is directly from God himself. Otherwise, we're going to be susceptible to false teaching. And false teaching is easy to follow because it often sounds close or right, and it often makes us feel comfortable or feel as though everything will go well for us. If we listen to Paul's words in 2 Timothy 4.3, when he warns Timothy of this, he says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. If, if you've ever had some sort of itch, you know, itching always, if you get a mosquito bite, the best way to cure a mosquito bite is to not itch it. But you know how it works. When you start itching, it feels so good. I mean, it's like a drug in and of itself. Itching something that is very itchy feels so good. But if you itch a mosquito bite really harshly, your fingernails have bacteria and all these things. It's dirty. And suddenly that one mosquito bite inflames and becomes infected and it starts growing. So what Paul is saying is that there is a word that's being going to be spoken by preachers, by authors, by those who are saying this is from Jesus, but these words always make us only feel good about ourselves. It's never intended to cause us to take sacrifice, to cause us to persevere through suffering and trial. It always has this prosperity tendency to it. And that 
is nothing more than another means by which we go down a dark road of false teaching and even heresy. There are so many people who are trying to undermine what Paul is saying, and the way they do it is to undercut who he is. The second part is understanding the message in verses 3 to 5. So what is this message that Paul is so deeply concerned about for the Galatians? Paul gives this thesis statement of this message, and then, again, chapters 1 all the way through 6 are going to be explaining what this message is and why it's so significant that we understand this at, to the absolute depth of, depth of what it is. We look at verses 3 to 5, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What we need to recognize is that the message means first God is the one who initiates all things. It's about God's initiation, not us. And the way you know this is by that very first word of, of chap, uh, verse 3, grace. Grace means God does the work. You don't do anything. And what often happens is we want the peace of God, but we don't want to relinquish and surrender everything to God. And the reality is that you don't get the peace of God without understanding the grace of God, that it is God who does the work. And it's, there's a means by which we get that grace that God, that God uses to show us that grace, and it's he gave himself for our sins to deliver us. It is impossible to find peace without this grace. And it's really impossible to find that peace within your own soul and every single turmoil in our soul ultimately ultimately i'm not saying there's a, always a direct causal link to sin but ultimately we're in a world of brokenness because of sin and so unless there is peace in our soul because of god's initiating work there won't be peace in our soul, and there won't be peace with others. And ultimately, there is no peace with God. People in our world are often trying to find this peace. And we try to find it apart from God himself. So if there's a break in relationship, how often it is we work so hard, we press so hard to try to find peace apart from God, and there really is no peace. There's always a failure to obtain that peace. It's almost like someone who has stage four cancer. And if someone were to say, hey, take two Advil and everything will be okay. It's the failure to recognize that there is a cancer of our spirit. And apart from God's grace transforming us, then any other action will give but a Bear, the barest minimum of comfort, which is really no comfort at all. Grace, on the other hand, means that God does the initiating work of rescue and salvation. And he knows fully that there is nothing we can do to conquer sin. And sin being the greatest chasm by which separates us from God and from other people. The world, and if you consider it, seeks peace from 
all sorts of opportunities and aspects of long life, of health, safety, financial, prosperity, popularity. But every time we trust in any of these for peace, they always let us down. And so Paul's telling us that the only means by which we have peace is through God's initiating work. So the next question is, what does that mean? What does that initiating work look like? Which is the second part of this message. The message means God's sacrifice. God's sacrifice. So he who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present, this present evil age. There was something so terrible that it required someone to rescue us. And the requirement of the rescue is that God had to sacrifice his son. And it shows us just how deadly and dangerous sins truly are. I mean, they are terrible to our souls. Notice what Paul assumes. He assumes something in this verse. Sin, all sin is so bad that it cost Jesus bearing the punishment of that sin. So when you read this, when you read that he gave himself for our, our sins, it always assumes that sin is that terrible that it required equally God to come and to bear that sin. And only when we understand and truly know that to be the case, no matter how small or great the sin that deserves that type of punishment, only then can we understand the gospel. Which is why, for example, Jesus makes this so clear for us. When we're so busy comparing ourselves relative to other people and saying, I'm not as bad as that person, such a heart will never understand the gospel of Christ. We won't ever see the gospel as good news because we don't see ourselves that bad. Good news is only possible. Salvation, rescue is only possible for the person who needs it. And if you always see yourself as not as bad as that person over there, then you'll never understand the gospel. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a conflict with a loved one, maybe a spouse, maybe a husband and wife, and you say, you know, if you should be thankful that you're married to me. Because if you were married to that person over there, your life would be miserable. But you should be thankful that you're married to someone like me, such a good guy. I mean, that type of heart and attitude fails to see rescue, a need for Christ, a desire for him. And the way that Jesus lays this out for us is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. When you have, thank you, God, for making me so special because I tithe, I do all these things. And thank you most of all that I'm not like that tax collector over there. And then the tax collector says, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, he's, and Jesus says, who went home justified in their prayer? Who understood their need for God, their need for salvation? Was it the Pharisee who morally looks righteous but can't see that in their heart there is wickedness? Or is it the tax collector who outwardly looks wicked, but inwardly recognizes it so much that he needs a rescuer? The Pharisee saw himself morally good and not such a bad person. And because of that, he could never, ever see a need for a savior. The gospel is only good 
for the person who actually realizes they truly need a savior. And that means a regular awareness of our sin. And there is, again, we, the problem for us is that we tend to classify sins based on our own sense of scale and weight. There's good sins and, and, uh, or sort of not-so-bad sins, and then there's really bad sins, and then there's sort of the white lie and the real lie, and there's these degrees that in our brain that we're always trying to compute so that in some sense it makes us not as bad. But isn't that a deadly, deadly concern for our souls. The greatest peril is that, is that person who doesn't think that they actually need a savior. This past week, a 12-year-old boy, if you read the news, was swept into the ocean at Half Moon Bay off of Colwell Beach. After a multi-agency search, they had called it off because they couldn't find him. They couldn't even find a body. And the National Weather Service, in reporting on this, in light of the high winds, they tweeted out this. They said, please use caution if you're at the coast and hashtag never turn your back to the ocean. Never turn your back to the ocean. And I read that and I thought, what a, what a great analogy for our spiritual soul. The problem is that we get lulled into thinking that the ocean is beautiful and I'm so safe. I don't ever, ever need to worry about it. So we're having fun. We're building sand castles in the sand, turn our back to the ocean, and suddenly a tsunami, a rogue wave comes in and sweeps you into the ocean and your body is never found. The, so too sin. Sin feels so good. It does. You wouldn't sin if it didn't feel good. If there wasn't something experiential about it that made you feel as though this, I don't want this feeling to end. But what's so bad about feeling anxious and letting that drive you or giving into your anger or your lust or your envy is that eventually it will swallow you up. Never turn your back on sin. Never think that, well, it's not that bad. The moment that you think it's not that bad, and also a corollary to that is judging someone else for theirs without considering yours, is no different than the Pharisee heart that walks away justified by their false actions. Sin is so great that it deserved God's curse. And I'll explain that a lot more when we go through Galatians chapter 3. But remember this verse in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Again, we'll, we'll flesh that a lot more later. But think of the curse of God being so great. We must never underappreciate that verse. It is a terrifying idea to be the curse of God. That's how grave sin is. And Paul's telling us here that the message of the gospel is that Jesus didn't simply ignore us and let us succumb to this curse. He didn't turn our back to us or our sin. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us and deliver us. I wish that ocean story had 
the, the end of the story was they found him on a cliff and someone swum out to sea and rescued him and pulled him in. But there is no rescue story in that story. But there is an eternal rescue story. There is an eternal rescuer. God himself delivered us. Jesus came to deliver us from our sins. It doesn't end with the rogue wave taking us in, sweeping us away forever and ever. The answer is that Christ has come and he saved us. And Paul is going to expound on this so much more in this letter. The message finally means God's victory, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus' death and resurrection, the gospel, assures us that he has won. And we need this message more than ever before, don't you think? Because in a time where there's darkness, there's a sense of despair and hopelessness, it seems as though well, has Jesus really won? Has the devil won? Has death won? But this word and the word of Galatians tells us that no matter how bleak things may appear, they will not win. Death, the devil, the world will fail. Paul says that, and this is referring to his present age and the, the age that we're living in. So it's a present continual tense. It's the present age, both Paul's day and now is evil. And so I do think that we have to go back and remember again and again that we are not living at the worst time of history. You know what was the worst time of world history? Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8. There was thus far no other time in world history, not World War II, not World War I, not the Cold War where there was a threat of an atomic bomb wiping out the world, not right now with the coronavirus. The worst time in world history was when there was only one person, at least one person representing one family that was faithful to God, and his name was Noah. Other than that, the whole world completely rejected God. And there, there was absolute rebellion against him. There was a, a complete turning away from God. Only six people followed God. Six in all the world. That's a very small remnant. I would say that's as dark as you can get. But in the midst of it, what happened? God came to rescue them. God's plan to undo the work of the devil would not cease in Genesis chapter 6 and 9, and it will not cease today. The worst state of the world, the promise is that it has been broken, the power of evil. Forever and ever, when Christ gave his life, he broke evil's power and death and the dominion of darkness and the devil, gone forever. May we remember that because I think you're going to need this good news throughout this time together as we go through Galatians. Jesus has won. Are you confident of that? Does that impact the way that you view the news when you read it? Or if you hear about someone who is 
really terribly ill, a loved one, go back to the gospel. Remember all the promises of God. And that gives you perspective to press forward and to even grieve as one who has hope and to pray with confidence that God's will and his kingdom through the gospel of Christ will carry through to the end. Galatians speaks of good news. We'll talk a lot about that next week. Why is the gospel good news and what does that mean? But Galatians tells us that we have been set free when we are in Christ forever from sin and death. And we have to let that sink into our souls. I want to close with Martin Luther because he, again, he wrote such a magisterial commentary on this one book. He says, practice this knowledge and fortify yourself against despair. This is really important because he's saying, this is how you conquer despair when you're, when you're living this life, particularly in the last hour when the memory of past sins assails the conscience. Say with confidence, Christ, the Son of God, was given not for the righteous, but for sinners. If I had no sin, I should not need Christ. No, Satan, you cannot delude me into thinking I am holy. Wow, what a statement, right? You cannot delude me into thinking I am holy. The truth is, I am all sin. Satan makes you want to believe that you are holy based on what you do, based on your works and merit. And what we have to say is, it is Christ, the Son of God, who makes me holy. And what Satan wants to do is he's so smart and crafty that he takes the idea of holiness that we as Christians want to pursue, and he twists it around to make it seem as though we can get this by ourselves apart from Christ. So he uses the same words, but completely takes away the gospel, the good news message. We need Jesus and Christ and Christ alone. And so it is by that means by we which we find the precious words of the gospel, these words that so many of us have memorized in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by flesh, in the, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice it's not holiness, it's Christ in me. He is our hope. And when we have that, we have the gospel. Oh, I, I'm excited for what is to come as we go through this and unpack it. But remember, God loves you. He gave himself for you. I want to close with, we're going to sing the song that we sang earlier because we're going into prayer and fasting week. And it's a battle. It really is. I've, I've, I spent so much time preaching on this idea. But the battle is for your mind and your heart the recognition that you need Christ desperately and you can't forget him. And there will be every temptation to try to get you to think, even this time of fasting, if I do this, I gain merit. No. Fasting in and of itself can be wicked. Prayer can be wicked, according to Isaiah 58. But because of what Jesus has done, we pursue him. We love him because he loved us first. And it is a fight. 
And so therefore we fight. And therefore we fight on our knees. We fight by lifting our hearts and our hands before him and we say, we need you, Jesus. We, we need you so desperately. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the gospel of your son. It is by Christ and Christ alone that we have any hope in this world. But in Jesus Christ, we know that death, the devil, this present evil age, the world, all of our sins, all of that has been cast into the the deepest of seas. And we are promised with full assurance that we can see you face to face. No more tears. Death will be no more. We have our rest, our delight in you. So Lord, as we go into this week of humbling ourselves, repenting of our sins, turning away, and even reminding ourselves that we we desire not to be swallowed up by this world's affairs and the the all-consuming nature of the present moment, but recognizing that you are a God who oversees history and time, and you've rescued your people time and time again, even when it seemed all hopeless, when the Israelites were standing on the precipice of being defeated by the Egyptians and being slaughtered, when there was no way that this great Red Sea would ever be able to be moved, and yet suddenly the waters parted, And you, by your gracious hand, parted the seas so that your people would be saved. And so too, once again, you part the seas of our sins and you bring us near to the sun so that we can have life forever. And so, Lord, as we sing, as we respond, as we pray, as we fast this week, may you remind us that you draw us near to yourself into your loving arms. You are faithful and good. And we just worship you, Lord, together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.